find roughly 11 missions a month and a few 77 missions. And I can't remember a time that uh, we ever made contact with the Germans and we didn't have it with a firefight of some kind. Well, firefight, flying with the Germans, 77 missions. You just heard from Captain William R. O'Brien, a.k.a. Obi O'Brien, who is a fighter ace in World War II, flying P-51 Mustangs with the storied 357th Fighter Group. You're going to hear more about that shortly, so buckle up. And welcome, Warrior Next Door, to another installment Oh boy, that's now that's the part that sucks because I can't say anything after that. <laughs> Go ahead. I liked everything from, except for that. Yeah, just say welcome to the Warrior Next Door program. I'm such and such. And there we go. It. Let's do that. Okay, you ready? Yep. All right. Welcome to the Warrior Next Door podcast. I'm Tony Lupo. And I'm Ryan Fairfield. And we have a really interesting podcast for you today. So stick around. You won't want to miss it. This is the Warrior Next Door podcast where we share oral histories from veterans whose stories provide an intimate look at world history and how much it still affects us today. All the veterans featured were interviewed by your co-host while serving as volunteers for the Library of Congress. Our interviews, over 200 in total, were conducted with veterans who live in our cities, our neighborhoods, and often right next door to us. You can listen to the full-length, unedited interviews from each veteran we feature on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Come join us. So, Ryan, this was an interview that we were able to conduct together early on as we were interviewing veterans for the Library of Congress. I believe this one was conducted probably around 2003 in Houston, Texas. That's where you and I were residing at the time. Yeah, no. I mean, uh, this this was a uh, this was kind of our first. I consider this our first kind of big time interview we did, where someone that was relatively famous. I thought, I mean, in my eyes, I think in a lot of people listening's eyes also. Yeah, how did we end up uh, connecting with Obi? It's been a long time. I I I don't remember. So, as we mentioned before, you know, in previous episodes and series, um, you know, when we were members of the West Houston Squadron, which was part of the Commemorative Air Force down in the Houston area, uh, there was a fella there that was, you know, a well-regarded guy in the squadron. He was an attorney. His name is Don Johnson. Really good guy. uh, uh, Really great to talk to and everything. Well, he would bring in, uh, somehow he, he was acquainted with or knew a lot of World War II vets in the area. Uh, probably through the air show, I mean, I would say, and um, he would ask one, maybe one a month or well, every couple of months, to come into the squadron meeting on a Sunday. And after the meeting was over, he would just do a Q and A with the veteran. And a lot of times, these guys they always had a fantastic story. Well, he brought Obi O'Brien in one day, and Tony and I, our eyes just got huge. <laughs> I mean, you know, he told you know he told us that you know this guy flew with you know in in the three fifty seventh and. And, you know, uh, the, like, you know, this is a very storied squadron and, uh, Tony will get into a little bit about his background, who he flew with here in just a second, but that's how we kind of met him. We, we went up to Obi after that. We asked him if we could, uh, come interview him for the veterans history project. And he's like, well, I don't really want you to send it into the government. They got (laughs) enough of my information, but if you want me to, if you want to interview me, you can. So we recorded this. This is just our own private stash of interview now. So 
Uh, anyway, Tony, uh, go ahead. That's, but that's yeah, what my I, recollection is. It is. And what I remember, I remember going to his house and it was a really nice neighborhood uh, in the Houston area. I can't remember exactly which neighborhood it was. It might have been in Sugarland. But we rolled in there and what was really kind of funny is, you know, we go in this really nice neighborhood, this really beautiful house. He lets us in. He's kind of a rascable sort of guy, as you'll hear as the clips get uh, to be played. And he was basically wearing a pair of blue overalls like a mechanic would wear. With slippers. That's right. That's and right. <laughs> he 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 had us go into his office and we just hung out in the office for an hour or so. Uh and on, on the wall he had pictures of these amazing individuals that uh like you know, giants in the aviation sector during World War II that we're gonna speak more directly to later. Um and it was awesome. You're gonna hear audio as as from these clips. You're going to hear kind of a, 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 a clicking noise in the background. And what it is, he's got his computer running in the background. And this was early enough with computers that you can hear the disk drive working like for memory, <laughs> like it was doing something. Maybe someone had hacked into it. Maybe it had spyware on it. I don't know what it was, but you're going to hear a little bit about that. But it was it was really cool. And the cool thing about Obi, as Ryan already mentioned, is is this guy, you can you can type in William R. O'Brien and Google him and a bunch of stuff comes up. This is a well-known guy. There's been books written about 357. He features prominently uh, in these books, in, in various YouTube videos you can watch for that generation or anything online. So because... Because this is such a storied interview with an amazing plane, the P-51, and a fighter ace in it during World War II, we thought we would bring back our very special guest, Mr. John Nowakowski, a.k.a. Oscar. So, John, welcome back, or Oscar, welcome back to the uh, Warrior Next Door podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. You know, we thought we we thought we needed to bring the big guns back in. You know, we you know there's not many I, guys. No, I don't know, know about big guns. No, <laughs> there's not many guys yeah, we yeah. know that are actually pilots, let alone pilots in the military, let alone pilots that fly f freaking sixteen jets. So you're our guy, and so we got to go to you. So yeah, and we're, actually, I wanted to get into that really quick, Ryan. So. Um, for the people who didn't have a chance to watch or listen to the Ken Thomas um, podcast, and you should, it's really awesome. It, it has to do with uh, Oscar commenting about the F-47 or the P-47. I'm sorry. Uh, Oscar, could you remind our audience a little bit about your background with respect to aviation and those sorts of things? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm a, a member of the 138th Fighter Wing in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, we fly F-16s. Um, I kind of, I, I was a, I was a Joe Schmo, you might say I was an off the street hire for the air national guard. So a buddy of mine who, we, uh, back when I was a civilian, we used to drink beers together. He was a guard guy as well. He flew the A-10 and one day he says, Johnny, that's what I used to go by back then is Johnny. He goes, Johnny, <laughs> you need to join the guard. And I go, I don't know, man. I kind of like drinking beer and just being a civilian pilot. And, uh, the <laughs> next thing I know I'm in the cockpit of an F-16 after he talked me into it. So, uh, it's been a great ride and a great experience. And and just so the, the the National Guard knows, you're not drinking beer in the cockpit of the F-16. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, uh, at least not when the airplane's running. You know, we wait until we shut it down. But, uh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. If, if there's anyone, you know, from Oscar Squadron that's listening to now, uh, we are all fully sober. Uh, there's no alcohol being consumed. This is a serious historical endeavor. Hopefully that's right. slightly entertaining. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, as, as Ryan was saying earlier, we've got an F-16 viper 
fighter pilot who's going to be able to add some commentary to one of his predecessors, which is uh, Obi O'Brien. So in full disclosure, Oscar, prior to being able to listen a little bit to this interview, were you aware of um, of the 357th Fighter Squadron or Obi O'Brien or anything from the interview prior to what we're doing right now? A, a little bit. You know, just I'm, I'm a fan of history. So, you know, 8th Air Force, right? The 8th Air Force, for lack of a better term, they're the fathers of of the Air Force. And the reason is, is because... You know, the guys that started the 8th Air Force who were big influential members of the Air Force are kind of the big wigs that would go on to create after the Army Air Corps transition of the Air Force. And and uh, and so they're they're kind of big names uh, there. And then as far as the, the actual squadron, I'm not as familiar with. Uh, and then, you know, we'll get, get more into it, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of big names at play here when you start talking European theater, theater P-51s and, and World War II. Yeah. Okay. So Ryan, I think we're ideally set up. What do we have right now? We've got we got a, a a a score of clips from someone who's been there and done that. We've got a couple of amateur historian hacks, you and I. We've got someone who still flies F16 fighters. I say we roll tape on this thing and start digging in. So, um what we normally do for those who listen to the podcast, if we're featuring a World War II vet, we like to ask what they were doing when Pearl Harbor was attacked to get a little context for where they were living and what they were doing. So we're going to start right there. So let's let her rip. Yeah, it was on uh, December the 7th, about 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when I heard about it. And I was with my family and our residents in McPherson, Kansas. It came over the radio that uh, Pearl Harbor had been bombed. It was, initial word I had of it. I didn't need another. I didn't have to be told more than once. That was good enough. I understood. As a matter of fact, I went down and enlisted. I think I went down that January and it, they were really screwed up. I mean, you can imagine what was happening. And uh, I had to go to Fort Riley, Kansas to sign up and uh, they had one Air Corps guy there and uh, of course, Everybody wanted to get in the air corps. And uh, so he told me to go home and get my teeth fixed. And so I had to go home and spend 50 bucks on my dough to get my teeth fixed to get in their air force. But that's the way it worked out. But, uh, otherwise, I didn't get in. So, Ryan, where have we heard this before? Yeah. We we just dropped an interview with Wish Lemons. And I remember he, was, he wanted to go in as a 90-day wonder. And why did they send his ass home? It was, it was because of that very same thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, because he had to get his teeth fixed. I mean, just timeline. This is January 1942, right after the attack on Pearl Harbor, which occurred on December 7th of 41. And at that point, and then shortly thereafter, Germany declared war on us after we declared war on Japan. So we're we're trying to mobilize. And uh, he goes to a recruiting center, and um, and they're, they wanted to cycle him out because of his teeth. So he spends 50 bucks. I don't have the inflation calculator to be able to tell you what $50 is now versus what it was back then. Was but I'm here to say it was, it was a lot back then, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, so I, I do have a question for you, Oscar, with respect to this. So we, yeah. we hear a lot about recruiting standards in terms of physical things sure. that will prevent you from getting into, in this case, the U.S. Army Air Force. What sort of physical things would cause someone who would want to be like a pilot today to not be accepted? Well, it's funny. It's funny because I always go back to the old adage of the more things change, 
the more they stay the same. Because <laughs> I myself had my wisdom teeth and they were all jacked up as most people are. And, you know, everybody hates going to the dentist. So they just let a bad problem get worse. I had the same thing. I, I, oh. I was, my, my pilot, uh, my pilot slot was in jeopardy because I still had my wisdom teeth. Holy so, crap. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I had to go get my wisdom teeth pulled on my own dime, uh, before I could go to, uh, to OTS 75 years later it's the same it's, it's the, the same, same thing that's thing. amazing <laughs> yeah so to answer your question it, it could be dental but you know it, it could be a multitude of things you know m- most people would say dental's fixable uh your eyesight however may or may not be so you know the the eyesight is the big one you know some uh, color blindness believe it or not is a is a disqualifying one that really can't be fixed so if yeah. you're colorblind that's out you know most most uh, nearsightedness far farsightedness, that kind of stuff can be fixed with either corrective lenses or with surgery now. But, but yeah, the eyes are the, probably the biggest one. So Oscar, yeah. so uh, what's the reason behind the dental concern? I mean, uh, I mean, is it because they just are too cheap? They don't want to pay for it or are they worried <laughs> that you're going to develop some problem during yeah, the I mean, situation you, and you're going to be debilitated? Yeah, I think that's really, and not even emergency situation. You you look at the situations when you're deployed. There, yeah, there's triage centers. You know, if you get a bullet wound or something like that, they're going to fix you up. Yeah. Your teeth are kind of like ah, I mean, you know, if they're if they're like good to begin with, they're going. They're one of those things that if it's good to begin with, it's going to stay good. You know, yeah. Uh, all the other stuff is kind of like ah, we we can't really triage for teeth problems. So if you if you know you need to get that fixed before you go, and from an aviation standpoint, your teeth are actually believe it or not connected very closely to your sinuses, and your sinuses can be a problem with flying. So I think uh-huh. that's probably where it comes from a little bit, but also from the standpoint of it's one of those things that's perpetual. So you, if if you have good teeth you're going to continue to have good teeth. If you have bad teeth, it could cause some serious problems down the road that really we don't have time for, I guess, from a military standpoint. <laughs> okay. Wow. It, and in full disclosure, we did not talk to Oscar prior to this. and had, I had no idea that that yeah. was also something that you had to deal with. And in our, in our podcast that is playing right now, Wish Lemons was in the Navy and he had the exact same problem. His had to do with his bite. And so um, now... We hear veterans during, you know, as the war progresses, the some of these things would change, but uh, this is this is early in the war, and recruitment st- standards were still pretty high. And it's interesting to hear that that's still the teeth is something that we'd look at today. Um, so we're going to move on to the next series of clips. Uh, there's what four or five of them that talk yep. about his transition from. Uh, a guy from McPherson, Kansas, who just heard that the war blew up in his face and he's going to go join the Army Air Corps and what his path is to becoming a pilot. Well, I had uh, started flying when I was a kid, about uh, well, I don't know, 16 on up. And then I got in that civilian pilot training program that Mr. Roosevelt put into the all throughout the United States. I don't know if you even know anything about it, but I'll give you a quick dissertation. If you were a land-grant college of any kind, then you were going to have a CPT program was authorized for that college. And that CPT stands for Civilian Pilot Training. And what they would do to give you training to get a private pilot's license. So this happened at the Oklahoma Military Academy where you were going to, if we got all through there, you're going to be a second lieutenant in the cavalry. So everybody was interested in a CPT program. And um, there's some damn good men in there. And a lot of them went on to 
they got their names written on several things, okay? And uh, so I went with that and got a private pilot's license, but I didn't do another flying after that. I couldn't afford to. Nobody could afford to. And But the only ones that could afford to do this is government. Me, I've been a, a GI in the National Guard, so I had been in the service before. So all they did was they just cut me some orders to go down to Williamsfield, Arizona. And uh, the reason they sent us, I don't know why nobody sent us down there, they want anything down there. But that was the reason they sent us down there, they want anything there to do. You couldn't hurt anybody, you couldn't cause trouble. They had some barracks built down there. They weren't any flying, this is just a cadet uh, accumulation point where you're going to start in learning how to drill. Well, hell, that was old stuff. I like that. It's easy. <laughs> and then after that, well, I uh, then got into the flying end of it. I always wanted to be a fighter pilot. I thought I'd do very well at it. I tried hard. And uh, apparently they thought I did good enough to send me down there to... If you were going to go to, to... If you're going to be a fighter pilot, there's only about two or three places you graduate from. One of them is Luke Field in Phoenix, Arizona, which is still turning out fighter pilots to this day. And there's another place down in Florida. There's probably two or three more scattered around advanced schools. And uh, the, the training was no different whether you were going to go to bombers or fighters. But that was where you went for advanced single engine training. They also had advanced multi-engine schools, which were actually twin engines, what they were. They called it multi, but well, it's true, it's more than one. So anyway, uh, but they didn't have four engine schools. So you learned fighters per se after you got out of advanced, and you learned bombardment as in, within itself after you got out of advanced. You went to a transition school, and that's where they started. You had a twin engine. Then after they find out that you can handle more than one engine and keep the airplane in the air, and they'll move you over someplace else. Okay, and then eventually some damn old group's gonna get stuck with you, and uh, that's what the West Coast. It was a 328th, I believe, was the name of it, and everybody went to the damn 328th. I don't care who you were. The answer to your question is yes, there is for each one of the phases you care to like, talk about. Uh, we killed about 13 guys in the United States uh, just learning how to handle the airplane. So nobody was shooting at us when we lost These guys were just, they'd fly into a mountain and hit something or they'd hit somebody else in the air or something like that. So the airplane was not a forgiving airplane. It was that P-39, which you see right there. Now, it's the most unforgiving aircraft that... Uh, Uncle Sam ever spent a dollar and a half for it. Uh, and that's about what it was worth. Uh, it was murderous and treacherous. But if you can manage to get about 150, 200 hours of time in a P-39, you're a pretty well qualified fighter pilot. Now, you're, you may not be combat ready, but you're getting them on the right way. Holy crap. It was like the P-39 gauntlet. Like, if the pilots could survive that, then they'd be okay in combat. So before we unpack the P-39, which he, he through some of these future clips, the ones coming up, he even, he continues to rip on it. Before we get to that, there's a couple other things that he spoke to that we want to clarify. So first off, prior to the war starting, he had already been a member of the National Guard. He had been kind of in the military, understood those sorts of things. And he was part of the CPT, which I had never heard of before, Rhino, but it's something I guess that you know something about. What is the CPT? Well, uh, just doing some research for this, um, you know, 
uh, you know, in the years kind of preceding World War II, s- several European countries, particularly Italy and Nazi Germany, began training thousands of young people to become pilots, purportedly civilian in nature, you know, as far as you know, they wanted to be civilian pilots. However, the, these programs were, in fact, nothing more than clandestine, you know, military flight training academies. They were trying to get around, you know, some of the uh, 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 effects of, you know, the, the treaties that they were in, that sort of thing. So uh, the U.S. Uh, inst- instituted their own version of this. And uh, FDR uh, signed the Civil Aeronautics Authority Act in 1938, and then that formed the Civil Aeronautics Authority, or the CAA. Um, It contained language containing uh, that authorized the funding and the trial program that would evolve into the Civilian Pilot Training Program, or the CPTP. Um, He unveiled, FDR unveiled a program on December 27, 1938, at at a press conference, and uh, announced that he had signed off on a proposal to provide a needed boost to general aviation by pr- providing pilot training to 20,000 college students per year. Wow. Um, at, at first, the military establishment was not a fan of the CPTP. They were like, what do you, we don't need, what are you talking about? Why do you need this? Until Germany attacked Poland. And then they're like, oh, then the value <laughs> we- of the program became obvious. The United States started to evaluate its ability to fight an air war, and the results that they came up with were appalling. They were not ready for an air war. So the pilots, the instructors, the training aircraft, they were all in short supply at that time. Acknowledging the shortage of the training pilots, of of trained pilots, the Army, Air Corps, and the Navy reluctantly waived certain elimination courses for CPTP graduates and allowed them to proceed directly into pilot training. So... Uh, they were ap- ap- evidently throwing up roadblocks saying, oh, these CPTP guys, we're going to have to give them these courses because they'll fail. Then we can flunk them out. Well, then they realized, no, we need these guys. They do have skills. Yeah. So so after the Pearl Harbor attack and we entered World War II, they, the CPTP, the Civilian Pilot Training Program, changed. And the name changed also. It became known as the War Training Service or the hmm. Civil Aeronautics Authority War Training Service. From 42 to 44 and served primarily in the screening program for potential pilot candidates. And of note, just in closing here, um, some of the legends that graduated that that came in through the CPTP, uh, astronaut John Glenn, Navy Mm -hmm. ace Alexander Vrashu, who actually was uh, one of the big aces in the Navy uh, during uh, the Battle of, uh, was it Midway? I think it was Midway. Um, And... um, the uh, Douglas test pilot, Robert Ron, uh, World War II ace, Richard Bong, triple ace, mm. Bud Anderson, got his book right here in front of me, and um, George McGovern. Uh, there was also some Tuskegee Airmen and uh, WASPs that actually actually came through the program. And, of course, our very own Obi O'Brien, who you just heard speak about this. O- Oscar, are you familiar with this program? Is there something like that that exists today? I'm not, and, and just just like I said about the medical stuff, it's the more things change, the more they stay the same. The Air Force has gone back and forth with with a, a program known as IFS, which is the Initial Flight Screening Program, and it's carried out by a company called DOS, or it was at the time I went through, by a company called DOS Aviation. It's a civilian contractor that's located in Pueblo, Colorado, and it went back and forth whether if you had a private pilot's license, you could bypass DOS 
or if you didn't have a private pilot's license, you had to go through there. So when I joined the Air Force, this is a humble brag, and I'm sorry. I had about <laughs> I had about 3,500 hours when I oh, joined. The, yeah, when I joined the Air Force, and I had flown. I had flown a multitude of different aircraft, a lot of them turbine powered and a lot of them fairly large, but yet I still had to go through IPT where you go at the time we, they flew a diamond DA twenties, which is a small, I think they're 150 horsepower, very small light aircraft. Um, but it, it kind of sounds analogous to the, like, well, if you have a private pilot's license sometime, and again, they went back and forth about this, whether you had to uh, have a private pilot's license. And if you did, you could bypass, uh, IFS and not have to take part in the screening process kind of sounds a little bit similar to what, uh, what CTPT allowed them to do is kind of bypass some of that screening because they had flight experience. Well, it's cool. And in the fact that it could prime the pump for this world war that was coming up, I thought was really interesting. So sure. So that's that's part of Obi's story was he already had some training that allowed him to lean into a bit more the ability to become a fighter pilot. He mentions the 328th Fighter Group really quickly. The 328th Fighter Group was established on the West Coast in California right after the attack on Pearl Harbor to put pilots on the West Coast in case the Japanese attacked the West Coast, which of course was, in hindsight, way beyond the abilities of what the Japanese could do, but based on... Uh, how skillfully they sank every battleship just about that we had in Pearl Harbor on December 7th. We weren't taking any chances. The 328th would morph into a holding pen for these men who came out of uh, 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 training in fighters, and they would continue to train there. And then from the 328th, they would be distributed to to other units. Ultimately, and we'll talk more about this later, he'll go into 357th. But the really the, the, the highlight of this clip for me is his visceral hatred for the P-39. Oscar, as our resident pilot expert, you just mentioned you flew a bunch of planes and 3,500 flight hours for you even got in the Air Force. You fly F-16s now. Why was the P-39 so maligned? Well, it, it, I, I sound like a broken record. The more things change, the more they stay the same. I look at the P-39 and I'm like, you know what the P-39 was? The P-39 was the T-38 of its day. Oh. And what I say by that is that it was inherently hard to fly. It had some design flaws uh, to it that made it, for lack of a better term, dangerous. And, and flying is inherently dangerous. Let's not get you know. Let's not not uh, not point <laughs> that out. But um, you know, you're going to go put yourself in an airplane, uh, put and go fly. You know, something that humans were never intended to do. And so it just had some of those you know fast approach speed. It had some uh, some not great systems backup wise you know you think about it back in the day and we you look at the airplanes we have today they're triple redundant we've got all these safety features and it's just man you could never go wrong with it whereas you look back then you're like holy crap uh i don't i don't know that i really want to like i wouldn't put my worst enemy in that airplane um and so and like i said the more things change the more they stay the same it's funny because the t-38 is much the way that is today it's a dangerous airplane to fly for like lack of a better term. Um, so it, in, in essence, I think it's, uh, it's good for the pilots to go through <laughs> such a difficult airplane because it, it probably makes them, uh, an old, an old pilot friend of mine used to say that you're the product of every airplane you fly and every air pilot you fly with. And yeah. I think, you know, the harder the airplane to fly and the more difficult the guy sitting in the other seat, if there is two seats in it, the probably the better pilot you're going to be. But, um, yeah. It, I mean, to me, it, it, it does sound a little bit like a training gauntlet, the T-38, which is what is used now, and then the P-39. 
I'm looking at a picture of the Air Cobra, and for those who who may not know, it was a mid-engine fighter. So most fighters you think of during World War II had the engine out in front, out in front of the cockpit. This was behind it. And then it had this propeller shaft that went between the pilot's legs <laughs> out to the front of the aircraft. And then because of its design, they put a um, a cannon, I think it's a 37-millimeter cannon, uh, in the propeller, uh, in, in the propeller hub. So, I mean, and, and it looks like a really interesting plane, but uh, I have uh, over time heard many accounts over and over of how terrible the P-39 Cobra or Air Cobra was to fly. So he's not done. We got a few more clips coming up later where he's going to continue to dig at it. So uh, real quick, I want to just jump in here. Um, uh, didn't the ME-109 have a 30-millimeter cannon in, in the nose also? Uh, yes. It seems like that, that yeah. Um, and I, did, I don't think there's any you know coincidence or, I mean, any sort of connection there other than um, you know, I think that was probably one of the only fighters we had that had a cannon like that in the nose was a P-39. Um, and then, you know, the propeller shaft between the legs, I've still, I still can't imagine that. I mean, is, <laughs> was it exposed? I mean, you wouldn't want to wear a scarf while you're flying because, I mean, <laughs> or a cape. If you wear a cape, that'd be kind of cool if you could wear a cape while you're flying. But, yeah. um, I mean, how, how crazy is that, you know? And, and then the last thing I want to say you know, unfortunately, you know, people may that are listening probably remember the air show crash in Dallas that happened just in November of 2022, where a P-39 Air Cobra crashed into and severed the tail off of the Texas Raiders B-17. And, um, you know, even even to this day, uh, they still don't know exactly what happened there. But it, I mean, part of me has to wonder if the nature of how difficult this plane was to fly might have somehow been you know, part of that. I don't know. I don't know anything about it. I do know that just a few days ago, they put out the, uh, the air traffic, um, uh, communication and, uh, you know, it doesn't really shed any light on what happened mm. other than, you know, uh, the response of some of the air boss, you know, telling, telling, uh, the, the fighter pilot to knock it off, knock it off, roll the trucks, roll the trucks, uh, whatever that means. Um, I guess that means, uh, the fire, the fire department, I don't know, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. uh, it definitely was a, a, it's a treacherous plane. It sounds like, you know, it is. And he mentioned 13 pilots dying just in training a accidents early in the war. And it is documented in common sources, not just 13 pilots, but also a flight surgeon. Um, so it was, it was, a uh, not a fun plane to fly, um, he they he would he would ultimately from there so just a bit of a timeline he would be flying P39s with the 328th um up until the end of 1943 before he would get assigned to the 357th so basically what happens next is on November 23rd 1943 so the air war was still very much in doubt over Europe at that time we have not had air superiority in any way um, that's when this, uh, this newly formed unit would end up, uh, going across the Atlantic into Queen Elizabeth. And it only took six days for the Queen Elizabeth because of how fast it is to be able to send their unit, uh, over to, uh, to England. He would arrive on the Clyde in Scotland and they would arrive, um, in November of 1943. So in these next series of clips, he's going to talk a little bit more, uh, not so much about the transition or, uh, the, you know, moving into theater, but he's going to talk about being in theater and starting combat uh, 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 operations. What fighter wing or squadron were you assigned to? 
The 357 fighter group was my original assignment for combat purposes. That group was assembling in Tonopah, Nevada, and I joined them with a position of a flight leader. And I was lucky. I, I got a good job, and it was a good group. It ended up being a very good group. Where exactly were you stationed in England? Where did you fly out of? We were stationed in a place called Leiston, L-E-I-S-T-O-N. These poor old boys, they were stuck with me to start with. <laughs> they had eight, I think, that's what we had in the flight. And uh, when we got there, you know, the combat strength of a, of a squadron was 16, the combat strength of a group, uh, was that 46? Yeah, and uh, so that's what we'd put up on a good day if everything was working. And we had nothing but good days, and believe me. Uh, the mechanics did a fantastic job of keeping those aircraft available and running. The only thing that stopped us, the most treacherous thing in the world, is the horrible weather. Yeah, you'll hear more about that. But let's talk about the 357. So he's in Lyston, Lyston, England, and the 357th Fighter Group. Uh, was um, a group that only existed during World War II. So, you know, I asked Oscar if he had heard the 357th before. There's no modern counterpart to it that would have historical connections to the 357th. It was only a thing of the Second World War. And it operated, it was the first fighter group to operate the P-51 Mustangs for the 8th uh, Air Force. And its members were uh, unofficially known as the Yoxford Boys. Y-O-X-F-O-R-D, after the village of Yoxford, which is near the base in the UK. The tradition holds that the name was the invention of Lord Haw Haw in a broadcast <laughs> that was a greeting the night of the arrival of, uh, of the RAF uh, uh, at Lyston. So the 357th was an amazing uh, fighter group. It flew, first off, in, in terms of total victories in air-to-air combat, it had the most of any P-51 group in the Air in the Eighth Air Force, the third most amongst all groups fighting in Europe, and that includes the ones that were flying other planes like the P-38s and the P-47s that were there much earlier because they wouldn't start their combat operations until February 11th of 1944. Uh, still relatively early in the war, but just starting to come out of the darkest of the dark days where we couldn't escort our bombers and our losses were really terrible. We were just, by the time this group showed up with these highly trained men, it was like the right time, the right training with the right equipment. And in fact, he mentioned the group coming out of Tonopah, Nevada. Um, this group, uh, when they were training with their P-39s, the, the entire time that they were there, they would begin a regiment of six-day uh, work weeks with six sorties a day, practicing air-to-air combat, bombing, strafing maneuvers. Um, so the bottom line is, is this was a, a this was a group primed to succeed, and they were issued P-51s that at this point had a lot of the bugs worked out of them, and they were just an amazing aircraft in themselves. The group would have a, a thousand personnel and 125 uh, aircraft, and I guess what I was wanted to ask Oscar as he mentions, you know, flights and then squadrons and groups and all that. And, and the numbers, I think he said there was like eight in a flight or 16 in a squadron. I don't know. How is that structured in today's Air Force? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is today. So you can kind of look at it a couple of ways. And the original structure, it, 
I'll say how we do it today. So today you have what's what's known as a wing. And a wing is a a large, let's say it's a pretty large group of folks. And within that wing, you have groups. Within the group, you have squadrons. Within the uh, squadrons, you have flights. And within the flights, you have elements. And that's kind of structured in a way that even though you have pilots and non-pilots, it's kind of structured in the same way we would talk to a, a flight of aircraft. And then you have an element of aircraft. And then you have a group of aircraft. And it could be structured anyway. But yeah, that that verbiage is 100% still relevant today. And and that is really how we organize. You know, when you talk like army side, you're, you're going to have company, battalion, um, arm, and then all the way up to an army. You know, there's probably a bunch in the between that that I'm screwing up. But um, mm-hmm. I'm not an army guy, so I'm sorry. But but uh, but it's just how you would regiment, uh, if you will, a a uh, or break down uh, a air force unit. Is you're going to have those elements, flights, squadrons, groups, wings, and then of course air forces, which he was a part of the eighth. So. Pretty, so pretty what, awesome. So what like uh, squad flight squadron group are you a part of? What would that be for you? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a part of A flight, 125th fighter squadron, 138th fighter group, or fighter group, and then 138th fighter wing, Oklahoma Air National Guard. So awesome. that's kind of like, that's, that's how you would break that, that down. And then it gets kind of tricky when you start talking about what air force do we fall under, because it depends what mission we're doing, but it gets a little confusing at that point. But yeah, it's funny. He says Tonopah, like Tonopah is near and dear to pretty much every fighter pilot's heart. Um, mm-hmm. because Tonopah is located in the, what they call the knitter, which is the ne- uh, Nellis test and training range, which is probably in my, this is just my opinion is probably the greatest air to ground gunnery range that exists in the United States. Oh, wow. Um, okay, well and, tell us about it. What what's it like? Well, so imagine a place where you can take a fighter jet and pretty much do anything. You can break the sound <laughs> barrier, you can drop bombs, you can shoot the gun, you can drop cluster munitions, you can shoot oh, rockets, yeah. you can oh it's like it's awesome. Um and, and it's no it's no uh it's no wonder why the United States Air Force also has their their weapon school, which for those of you that are Top Gun fans out there, Top Gun is based off of the Naval Weapons School. Well, the Air Force doesn't call it Top Gun. We call it the Air Force Fighter Weapons School. And the Air Force Fighter Weapons School is based at Nellis Air Force Base, Nevada. And Tonopah is is northwest of there out in the desert, but it's within the confines of the Nellis testing training range. It's amazing. It's awesome airspace. Uh, I've flown there before. It's, it's great. You get to, you get to pretty much do anything and everything that you can do in the airplane. You get to do in that airspace. Oh my gosh. Oh, sounds like fun. Oh, oh yeah. Boy. Yeah. It's, it's great. Yeah. I, I mean, is it, is it, is the airspace big enough? You said you could break the sound barrier. Is it big enough where you can really put the hammer down and, and have a lot of time to kind of get up to speed and maneuver and all that? Yeah, absolutely. It's giant. Um, and, and it's in the, it's in the Nevada mountains, which makes it even more fun when you're flying low, because when you're flying low, you can hide behind the mountains, which is pretty awesome. You know, the enemy has a lot of radars, you know, uh, kind of modern day thinking, and you can usually mask if you will. And there's plenty of valleys and peaks and you can kind of hide behind, uh, behind those, those, those rocks, if you will, to, to get to the target, which is pretty awesome. You are a lucky man, Oscar. So here's here's a, a quick uh, description of Tonopah in March 3rd, 1943. So the predecessor to all of this amazingness that you just described to our audience. 
On 3rd of March, 1943, the group moved by rail to Tonopah, Nevada, where it would remain until June 3rd. At Tonopah, the members lived in and worked under primitive conditions described as, quote-unquote, tar paper shacks (laughs) and without enclosed hangar maintenance facilities. I guess we've come a long way since then, haven't we? Yeah, we have. I will tell you, I've been to Tonopah and and, uh, probably some of that same area where the tar paper shacks were... Uh, I've I've been to it's 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 updated somewhat, but I will tell you that the the uh, the camp that is there now it's it's not much it's better. Not, it's <laughs> it's by no means five star. Let's put it that way. But it's it's still a cool place to visit. They've upgraded from tar paper to styrofoam shacks. <laughs> I, yeah, I, hey, uh, there, there's they they at least have beer there, which is good. So beer, beer is a big deal. Make, yeah. Makes everything better. We weren't supposed to talk about alcohol on this, and we just can't help ourselves. Okay. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed episode one of the Obi O'Brien series, where he described being trained as a fighter pilot during the Second World War. We also hope you enjoyed the commentary from our guest host, John Nowakowski, a.k.a. Oscar, an F-16 fighter pilot who was able to connect the tendrils of the past between the war fighters from 1940 to the present day. Please join us for next week for episode two, where Obi will share his impression of the P-51 Mustang and how he and his squadron would use it to great effect during combat missions over Europe against the still potent and deadly German Luftwaffe. Welcome to the, I don't know, the addendum part of the Warrior Next Door program where we are able to share uh, listener comments or any variety of things that we feel like sharing with our audience. And what I wanted to spend some time on with this particular portion of this episode is to thank Peter Lyon, again, the author of The American Saint Nick, uh, for basically allowing the Warrior Next Door podcast to host and create an audiobook version of this amazing story of uh, humanity, quite frankly, during a very inhumane time in, in human history, which was World War II, which is right before the Battle of Bulge in Wilts, Luxembourg. And we have received an incredible amount of positive feedback about the four-part series that we recorded and shared over the month of December with our audience uh, from the book. Basically, we had Peter Lyon, myself, Ryan, and relatives of the actual American Saint Nick, uh, Dick Brookins, as well as relatives from Wilts Luxembourg who experienced the magic of that American St. Nick holiday in December of 1944, actually reading select chapters from the book. We're going to leave this up for another couple of months. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to this, uh, please do. It's a free audio book. It's very well written and will be potentially made available in other media at some future date. Let's just say there's a lot of interest in this story. So We just wanted to uh, thank Peter Line again for allowing us to uh, create this audiobook experience for audience, and we really hope that you enjoyed it as well. Until next week.